The following program was produced by a community producer. All sit. We don't have a pitch out. Hello and welcome to More Than 02148. I'm your host this e today, Ed Lucy, and my guest is Tim McCarthy from the Eastern Middlesex Alcoholic Services, or to save yourself, E-M-A-S. <laughs> and just a, a quick background, Tim, exactly what is the function of EMAS or Eastern Middlesex Alcoholic Alcoholic Services. Eastern, EMAS is, uh, and thank you for inviting me, by the way. Thank e you for accepting. That, uh, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure to come down. Uh, EMAS was formed in, in 1981. Of course, you were part of that, and, yeah. uh, along with uh, a lot of individuals who really helped uh, put it together. And it is a state-funded residential program for addicted men. Now, it's got alcoholism in its title, but at some point in time, we really have to change that because it's, it's, it's really addiction services, not alcoholism, although we treat alcoholics. Uh, but most of the other kind, or the, not the clients, but the, uh, the residents and the applicants that come in uh, are addicted to drugs as well as alcohol. So we saw in 1981, and uh, I took over in 2009, uh, in 2009, I took over as the clinical and the executive director. At that point in time, EMAS was a 25-bed residential program, and upstairs there was a 10-bed graduate program, which was very unique for residential programs for men and women to be able to have a graduate program in the same facility. So, uh, it, it like most, like most residential programs. They're three to six month programs. They're designed in order to help men rehabilitate, uh, to get back to work, to get back with their families if they have any families or anybody that they're involved with. In other words, get, get, get to a, a normal life and a safe and sober life. The graduate program upstairs is a step down to that. So we've learned that three to six months is not enough for our men. Uh, the way they come in today, they have multiple problems. Uh, the, the drugs along with the alcohol makes it more complicated. Oftentimes, their family is totally estranged from them. They have legal issues. They have child support issues. And they really need more time than the three to six months. So your son, Sean, uh, as well as John Brennan, my friend who, who ran EMAS, got together and, and built an addition to the 25-bed program that serves the 10 graduates. So what ends up, what, what happens is that they can go through the, three, if they graduate the six-month program, they can then spend some time upstairs. Now, uh, it was successful, and in 2012, we, we, we purchased our first um, freestanding residential program that would be the second step down. And that's over, you know, and I have three of them. We have three of them now, and they're all in Malden. And that is a 10-bed facility um, that's, um, that's located in a side street off of Ferry Street. Uh, and we've owned that, like I said, since 2012. And it serves 10, 10 um, graduate men, 
You have to go through the EMAS program and stay sober in order to be in that program. There is some treatment that's involved with it. There's still an encouragement for the men to get involved, or actually an insistence they get continue to get involved with AA and NA in counseling and maintain their sobriety. 2015, we purchased another house, actually a bigger one, over in Salem Street. And we can have up 11, maybe 12 men in that house. Um, and again, that's been very successful. Most of the times, times they have been full. So in 2017, we were able to purchase a third house, a third freestanding house. And that's off of Salem Street on a side street. And uh, that also has been pretty much full and successful. So at the present time, EMAS can serve not just 30 residents, because we're up to 30 residents in the program, but also 40 graduates, so that we can have 70 men within our milieu. You know, uh, you mentioned about the the name. It just really, you know, you get used to, uh, and uh, just as a... Uh, Tim mentioned my son Sean. Prior to Sean being a board member uh, of some years, I was uh, I was also on the prior. I was on the board before Sean. Right. And since then, uh, my son Greg has been on the board for a number right. of years. But you know, coming over here was kind of going through my mind some of the things that I thought might be important to talk about. I, it, it did occur to me that alcohol, it's more of a double addiction or, or a drug issue yeah. today rather than yeah. alcoholism because. Uh, uh, it just seems to me that years ago, and that, my my tenure on the board was a long time ago. It was an older group yes. of, of people that were uh, uh, clients of the, of the service, uh, and there was a residency. As a matter of fact, the step down, my definition might be like a three quarter house. Is yeah, that, what, that yeah. was the term that was used. Yes, yeah. and, uh, and even a halfway house, but that's not really commonly used anymore. Uh, we still kind of use it, but it's old terminology. Yes, that, well, yeah. that fits me as a profile. <laughs> me too, <laughs> but. <laughs> The, 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 and it shows a difficulty sometimes because uh, to, to track back a little bit of history, uh, at the time I was involved with the board, there was a, an effort to put together a similar program um, of a three-quarter way house. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it, 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 after a relatively short time, it was, it was deemed not feasible for a lot of different reasons. So that part of the program was, it was eliminated. And uh, now you can see what has happened since then. And... As you kind of alluded to the um, the residency, I, I kind of think of an old adage there: uh, people would be in, in favor of programs of different types, whether it was for uh, mental illness or for alcoholism right. or drugs, but not in my neighborhood. Not in my backyard. Yeah, That's and right. and yet uh, in Malden, um, th those sites that you mentioned, um, I, I, maybe sometimes even the neighbors don't even know they're there. Uh, correct, and, yeah. and even you know the 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 main house that we have, which is over in Cedar Street. Yeah, I yeah. think that that uh, most people know. Well, some people know what we do there, but the residents around there don't really have that much of an idea because we insist with our guys in order to make sure they're respectful to all the community that's around there. And since 1981, that's been really successful. Yes, yeah. and and. Um and they are but most because I, I know the locations of the uh, yeah. uh, they are in very definitely yes, they are. not only in um, in residential area but there's a proximity sometimes to a school oh and, sure and, and oh, then sure the, the, uh, I know the newspaper years ago used to do a log on uh, on activities of the from the police journals but uh, I don't recall too often there'd be a problem so, so serious enough that you'd have to have the police be right. at your door and I yeah. think. The neighbors are aware of that because the results over the year it has been success. But like any program that deals with people with afflictions of various types, there are sometimes disappointments. And uh, there's a limit to the type of clients. What would be a typical kind of profile of, of somebody that would either be recommended for your program or apply to your program, and you'd have to make a judgment whether they would fit the... the, the yeah. Yeah, the, what you're looking to try and help. Yeah, in, in going back to what you talked about back in your days, in which it was primarily alcohol and some yes. cocaine, the average age when somebody coming in to a halfway house, a residential program, was about 45, 50, that they probably still had um, a family intact. They had a house to go to, you know, wife and children. They had a job. 
And what what was going on was they they the booze, you know, the alcohol took over their life and they had problems and they crashed and burned and probably kicked out of the house and they had no place to go and they would go into a detox and then end up in a program like EMAS and it's like this uh, I believe there's 71 other recovery homes halfway houses in mill in 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 Massachusetts uh, but that's dramatically changed now uh, the average age that we get well across the state it's about 28 27 and 28 Oz tends to be a little older I don't know why that is but uh, it probably is is in the early to the mid 30s. I've had uh, gentlemen who've been in their 60s. I have guys in the house now in their 50s, not uncommon. And I've had uh, a guy as young as 19 in the house. The, the problem with that in the span there is, is somebody who's 62 years old, and I don't know if that's still called the boomer, but 62 years old is relating to a 19-year-old kid today. That's two generations. I'm its grandfather, grandson. Yeah. Now, and we pride ourselves in EMAS on making that work, on on uh, the guys developing a culture in our house that's very pro-recovery, but it's also a community and sort of an extended family. Uh, also, the drug has changed. Um, it used to be heroin, but there's no heroin anymore. It's all fentanyl and, and things that are mixed with it. So uh, the typical individual that I would get referred to me who would go through a detox and go, then go through a program that's also funded by the state, a CSS, as they call it, or a TSS. They're really uh, programs that are designed in order to assess the individual and to hold them prior them to them going to a residential program. Uh, they have many problems today, is, is the individuals that you saw back in your day is weren't as didn't have as many problems and complications as, as, as the younger people have today. Because of the drugs? It's because of the drugs had a lot to do with also the breakdown of the family that happened, you know, in the 70s and in the 80s. And, you know, most of the, the men that are in my house don't come, they have no fathers in their home. Uh, and, and they come from, uh, they tend to come from addicted families as well. So they have the combination there of the uh, adult children of alcoholic syndrome along with not having the father. And as we know in our society today, fatherlessness is a huge problem that we have. Uh, so so that's, that's a profile of them. They probably uh, will drink or maybe not. It's not their drug of choice. Uh, fentanyl mixed with heroin, if they can get it, is their drug of choice. There's some cocaine. It is always pot, you know, and uh, other exotic drugs like this xylazine out there right now that's called Trank. They're having a terrible problem with in Philadelphia and some of the other places. And methamphetamine, which used to be a, a, a southern and a western drug, is now coming into, into Massachusetts. And what's interesting is you can have a 52, 53-year-old guy whose primary drug of choice is alcohol, but he also does meth. He's a tweaker. You know? And so it, it's polysubstance dependence is, is the profile of people that we see. You know, I, uh, I I kind of date myself, but as a as a someone who used to go down the ballpark years and years ago when I was young, um, the, maybe a baseball pickup game or uh, yeah. they used to have t- sure. t- teams uh, like at the different parks play each other during the summer, but there would be men down there, and like uh, and, and I was at that time I might have been ten or twelve years old, and they literally would be live be homeless. And they would, of course, the summer weather, the weather's warm. And I can remember sometimes they, their spouses or their girlfriends would come down to visit them with other children, maybe yeah. in the family, and yeah. they would be there. But it, I think at the time what would happen is that when the cold weather came and they'd get into trouble, the, the state used to send them to Bridgewater. Bridgie. And, yeah. and that way there they would spend the winter in Bridgewater and yeah. they'd be back yeah. down in Ferry Park or wherever. They, they would hang out after that or maybe... Peter Levine doesn't mention them in his column, but they must be down the park at Edgeworth as well, because they had a bandstand down there. But the the uh, but alcohol was the issue in those days, sure. obviously. And yeah. and uh, the, uh, the the current people are uh, young, as you indicated, yeah. and they double do sometimes double addicted. And yeah. being a, dr- a drug addict, um, 
you, uh, you can be an alcoholic on a relatively small budget, but when you're an alco- when you're a drug addict with the, with oh, it's street pretty expensive. Drugs, so you have to get the money from somewhere. Yeah, you got to commit crimes on yes, to get the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, as you mentioned that in, in, in talking about what's going on with homelessness today in Bridgewater or Bridgie, as they call it, is is it's the people who may not know, and this goes back to the fifties and the sixties. Bridgewater was a prison. And I used to work for Pine Street when I first got sober myself and get into the field. And that we would go around in the morning, and it's a remarkable sight down there. Um, I think it's pretty much the same thing in which 5 o'clock you flash the lights, and the whole whole room was filled with bodies of men on the men's side. And you'd go around to some of the alcoholics who were really hurting, and they were cut open from falling, and then you would kind of nudge them and say, you want to go to Bridgie? And they, oh, Bridgie, I don't want to go to Bridgie. But then you'd get a couple of individuals, and you'd help them up back in those days because you knew if they kept drinking, they were going to die. And we Shanghai them a little bit, and we get them into the van. And on the way down to Bridgewater, you'd hit 24, and we'd break out the Morgan David wine and so they wouldn't have seizures. And yeah. we, would, we would hand them the cups, and you know they would take it. And they'd get into Bridgewater, and they had the guns there, and... It was a real prison, but it was a place that served chronic alcoholics. And they'd be there for 10 days. And after 10 days, they'd come back, and you wouldn't even recognize them. They, we'd go down there with the van, dropping the guys off in the morning, and, 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 and take guys back who'd been there for 10 days. And Bridgewater, which was a prison, saved a lot of lives. Because as you're right, Ed, is that people go down there and they, they have the same job, you know, painting this year, or are you going to paint the boiler room, and I did it last year. And they would drink in the common and, and then they'd really get heavy with it and really get sick. And it used to be there would be a drunk, drunk, drunk and disorderly or something, three of them, and then the court would remand them down to Bridgewater and it saved lives. But in, in 68, a law was passed in which they treated it as a disease and not as a crime, uh, which, is, which is obviously it is a disease. But what's really interesting today is you have such a homeless problem that there is in you know, I mean, I think there might be some people out there from the state and individuals who disagree with me, but I don't think it's a homeless problem. It's a drug problem. Sure, the homeless is, it's homelessness because of drugs and this mental illness, which goes around with the addiction. But, but because there is no way to have a health emergency and to scoop all these folks up and then, you know, find out what their medical condition is and offer them treatment... You know, and then after that, maybe some housing if it's available, uh, and coerce them if you can into treatment. They're going to stay out in the street in mass and cast, and it's like zombies down there. They're dying down there, but because we have gone to the other extreme and treated it purely as a disease with free will, we've allowed them to continue. You know, just to basically die in the street and get involved with crimes, and it's really a terrible situation. So now, finally, what we're starting to hear is, I think, some reasonable people who were saying, call it a health emergency, scoop them up, find a place, medically check them, offer treatment. Those that don't want treatment, yeah, you let them go, but they can't go down and put a tent on Mass and Cass anymore because that's illegal. And if they do that, you arrest them and, if necessary, incarcerate them. Now, so it's interesting that we're sort of going back to where it was back there because the model of just treating it like a disease and allowing people to kill themselves on the street is just hasn't worked. Matter of fact, that section of Boston that you alluded to here, yeah. they had it when the, I think it's, it was when the new mayor came in a while back in Maywell? Boston. Yeah. Uh, they were down there and supposedly clean the area out, yeah. but now it's, it's worse than it was then. Well, they, they've done it uh, before her, um, uh, Maddie Walsh, Mayor Walsh. Yes. And it, it's been a problem, but recently, in the past th- four or five years, it's really been bad down there. The problem is, is that they go down there. And they've done it before, and they take the tents down, they clean it up, they clean up all the needles— but the but the, the folks who were addicted just move into the parks around there, and they put up the tents up around there where they live. And then what ends up happening is they start leaking back into the same thing. Get they get new tents, and the folks that give them the tents and the folks that really help them out is, I mean, they're helping them. They mean well, but the whole thing about addiction is that you have to stop enabling individuals. 
you know, and, and you had some folks down there that have propane down there, and God knows what's happening in the tents, you know, and the crimes that are being committed, and you got the cartels are dealing drugs. Uh, all this stuff is going on because we just haven't taken a stand that we need something. You know what it is? That we're not helping them with this, that we're really hurting people by allowing them to live like that. Now, here in Marlin, other than maybe uh, if there's a place where they could go on a bridge for uh, yeah. uh, there really isn't areas where there's... There's a warming center, isn't there? Is there a warming center downtown? The, 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 well, yeah. at, at the old school there? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 But that's a day-in, day-out program. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. But as far as like a, a place you can stay overnight and that, no. Yeah, although, uh, again, uh, uh, you know, as much as problems are the other areas of the, of the society, um, they only have so many beds. And once the beds right. are filled, those people right. that are left over uh, waiting to go in can't go in there that day. They only come back the next day, but they're not going to get in because there's a limit to how many they can deal with by the, per day. Now, in your own career, you mentioned, uh, obviously, the, the EMAS, e uh, but also the Pine Street Inn. So you have right. an extensive background in, in social services of various types. Well, addiction is, you know, I sat in the Pine Street Inn, which basically is a shelter. And, and to what you say to your point is uh, they would take everybody in, especially if it was really cold at night, and, and they would just sleep in the floors. Uh, if it was above, I believe, 32, then you'd have to go out during the day. And, of course, they, they would have counselors there to try to help, help the guys out and then try to get them jobs and help them with that. Uh, but the, you were talking about chronic alcoholics back then when I, I was dealing with that, not, not so much drugs. And the mental illness, the depression, the bipolar disorder, the trauma that goes along with it. Yeah, you know, and so so I did that and worked in detoxes and treatment centers. I work with professionals, nurses, doctors for the state, setting up programs in order to help professionals maintain their license while they were addicted to drugs. Yeah. Um, the coronavirus affected. Uh, um, There's a resurgence of, from uh, from what, what yeah. I understand recently in, in terms of the, the number of people who seem to be afflicted, but. That had to be very difficult oh. to adjust to that from from your perspective in that you're dealing with people who sometimes don't take care of themselves mentally or physically, and now you have to try and direct them to, 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 to maybe to save themselves. But how much of a change did that occur during those two two or three years that you're dealing with? 20, 2020, 2021, yeah. get better in 2022. Well, here's, here's where, and I hope that my staff is going to be watching this tonight because I'm going to talk directly with you. My the most wonderful, I am blessed with the most wonderful staff, is in 2020 when it, it first hit, I was the first person, to put a per, first person to put a mask on in there to encourage, encourage everybody to do that. My staff stayed with me during that time because they were devoted to helping the men that we had. We never closed the door. We, we kept taking referrals. We had multiple cases. At times, we had six, seven individuals in the basement because we had to go through the isolation. You know, I had staff who was sick. Uh, yeah, it, it was a very difficult time. But, but whereas, I want to say this in a way that's not offensive to anybody, whereas other parts of the state and other parts of departments that, that help we're able to work from home. You know, I had said to my staff, you don't have to come in. You know, you don't have to put your health on the line to come in. But they all chose to be there with me. I cut down their hours and supported them through this thing. And it, re it was really an unbelievable experience. And you're right, is that we, since we have a lot of young guys, the young guys really didn't get in sick. But we had some, some individuals who were really sick. And my program director, Phil Idiot, he was a master at separating them and putting all the COVID folks together, putting them in the basement. But we were able to get through those two very, very difficult years by continuing to do uh, what we did to help to help men with, uh, with their recoveries. Yeah. And things have picked up a bit in terms of the... Uh, the COVID? Yeah, not in terms of that so much as that you've been able to go back to what, what was kind of a normal functioning... Oh, it's uh, been that way for a while. It's, yeah. I mean, this year, last year... Uh, I think we, I don't, I don't know, it's been a year since the in masks. Now, I just had a couple of cases so of COVID, two, three cases of COVID. And, and our concern is that there's going to be an outbreak. 
I mean, you got 30 guys in the house, and plus the graduate, which I can have 38 guys in the house. You know, and they all eat family style. Uh, it's hard to have six feet separation. You know, I tell the guys to wear the, with the mask. I mean, but I don't know what they're doing upstairs because they don't want to wear the masks. And, you know, we did, we did the best we can. So things are much better right now, but I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it is coming back, Ed, like you say. And now it doesn't seem to be as virulent as it was before. Uh, I mean, you know, back in 2020, I mean, well, what happened well, sometimes mutation is worse than the original Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Yeah. Remember, you knew you're talking about refrigeration trucks yeah. and bodies and thousands of people. There 4,000 people died a day. Yeah. No, we're far away from that now. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you mentioned uh, funding. Now, is that your basic source of funding, the state? Yeah, we're a state funded. Thank God for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has been fantastic to us. It's the Department of Public Health and the bureaus underneath is the Bureau of Substance Abuse Services has been extremely supportive of everything that I've done down there. Uh, you know, purchasing the houses and, and the sober houses and all the people that uh, that have worked with me over the years have been incredibly supportive and helpful to our agency, but that's, that's 90, uh, we get a donation every now and then, and sometimes like the PPP money that came out, we're able to get some PPP money, and that was a grant, uh, that was during the COVID time, because yes. we would go down, we would normally have, we normally have 26, 27, 28 guys in the house, we were going down to 16, 17, and 18, you know, guy, people were coming in with COVID, and, and, and what would happen would be is the places that referred them would be completely shut down because everybody had COVID. So they weren't transporting them. We weren't, you know, able to bring anybody in. So thank God they put out, the government put out the PPP loan, uh, which helped me in order, you know, I never missed a payroll. I didn't have to lay anybody off. So uh, we're blessed that they gave us all that help. Yeah. The, 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 uh the typical case is use a referral that, that 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 you would interview to consider coming in uh, to participate in your program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's uh, an initial call. How it goes, that is, and we're back to the way it, it, it was originally. Is like I said, the acronym CSS and TSS transitional holding and. Is somebody goes to detox, obviously they're going to be there for a period of time depending on what the drug is and what the health situations. In the next stage, the docs get in, the doctors get in there, and they, they take care of them with the physicals and, and, and prescribe them medications. And then there may be a period of time in, in holding in which they wait to get a bed in one of the many you know, recovery homes that they're around, certainly around the Boston area around here is the majority of the 72 or three men's recovery homes that there, that there are in the state. And uh, ours is somewhat different because uh, most of the other houses are traditional model of the house. And that is, and that's fantastic. And that is like the old, back to your day, which is you come in here, you get most of your treatment through NA and AA, you get a counselor, uh, and, and you go to work. Uh, but we've always been the first month you don't work and, and we front load the treatment. Uh, I am extremely fortunate that my clinical staff uh, are all highly educated. Three of my staff have completed their, mass, uh, their, their bachelor's degrees and are either in a master's program or completed a master's program. And that's all because of my board of directors which your son Greg is the president of that, has allowed me to give them some money to go to further their education in order to further their skill level so it, it helps the, uh, the level of treatment that I can provide to the clients that come into the program. Uh, that's what separates us, I think, from the other houses. And, and so when we do interviews, uh, we, we tell the guys, listen, you know what you're getting into, you know, and... Uh, because they, everybody says, I want structure, I want structure, I want structure. But a lot of these guys, you know, they, they can't handle the structure. And I don't want to set them up for failure, thinking that, oh, this is what I need, so I should go in here and, 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 and they'll fix me. Because a lot of them aren't ready for that. And we, we say to them, you should go to, a, go, go to one of the other programs there, try it then, and if it doesn't work out for you, then you can give us a call. But we sometimes talk people out of our program because I don't want them to fail. I could take everybody in, but I don't want them to fail. 
The ones that come in, yeah. um, there's rules of the house. Oh, yeah. What's the, what's the seriousness of, of breaking <laughs> a serious rule? Not, not someone that uh, didn't clean, his, clean up after him after he, after he got up in the morning. But, you know, people do go into programs, and for whatever reason, they, 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 they push the envelope, so to speak. Yeah, uh, yeah that would be me. Uh, and, and actually, uh, uh, Phil Idiard and Linda Hawkins, who's my clinical director now, they're doing a lot of that stuff up for years. You know, I did that. Listen, folks, you're going to have 30 relatively young men who have been living out there, sometimes in the street, but doing what they want in today's culture and society, a lot of millennials and, 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 and all that. And if you don't have some rules in order to try to contain them, you have absolute chaos. You can't get any treatment done, a lot of stuff you know, will go on. It'll be a very unsafe environment. So all of us, all of us that run these houses have to be pretty tight with some of the rules. Like this curfews. You get to sign in and sign out. You have to know where you are. Start work after a period of time. Everything goes through the counselor. The counselor makes the decision whether a guy is ready to do that. There's an old saying in the addictions field that is that when the, when the client is in charge of his treatment program, there is no treatment. Like being a doctor for yourself. Exactly. <laughs> and so you got, you got a guy coming in here who's been ripping and roaring out there, and uh, you know a 32-year-old guy has been running the show and crashing and burning, and after he feels better at three weeks, he's going to tell you what his treatment plan is going to be? No, I mean, that's insane. They, they, you know, it takes a long time to recover. So we have guardrails for them. To answer your question is I had to ask somebody to leave yesterday, and I don't like doing that, and I have not liked doing it before, but sometimes an individual is so toxic toxic to the community, and in this particular case was disrespect, disrespectful to my staff. And I have, I have a lot of women working for me, and one of the rules that I have is— That's have a, That to, could be a problem. Well, yeah, exactly, is, is it's one thing to be disrespectful to my male staff, it's a totally different thing to be disrespectful to my female staff. And they know that coming in, and I won't tolerate. A lot of the guys, the younger guys around today, again, have, you know, have no respect for women, and they don't have any boundaries with that. So coming into our program, that's something that not just I enforce, but it's interesting, is the men who have been there for a while and the graduates in the program, they don't like that. They don't like when new people come in and are disrespectful to the staff. They want to have a nice home. They want to be able to have a community that's working. They don't want to have somebody come in and disrupt their, their peace. Do you, do you have many clients that smoke cigarettes? Oh yeah, yeah. So they have to go outside to smoke. Yeah, they got to go outside to smoke. It's 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 one it's one of the things that tortures me. Of that is is smoking is, if you're talking about opiate addiction and smoking goes hand in hand, the receptor sites are very similar like that. So. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, DPH, and God love you, DPH, and Bureau of Substance Abuse, they have this obsession about tobacco, and, and you know, and, and, and I agree with them, but it's, it's it, it, the research says that if you want to give up smoking, you give up smoking, or you give up all sorts of drugs and alcohol, uh, but that's nice in theory, is, is if I said to my young guys, you're going to give up smoking here, I wouldn't have any clients. You know, now, there is a house, Granada House, a great house, that is a non-smoking house. and been that way for years, and they, they pull it off. But I think that most of us that run these houses have sort of, you know, we, we, we have to have a tobacco coordinator. We do a lot of education. We encourage these guys to stop. But at the same time, yeah, I don't agree with some of the re research and say if somebody is a, is, is a fentanyl addict and is at risk to relapse and to shoot and die, I'm not going to make a big deal about this smoking initially with that. If they're with me for a while, of course, we will have the, we have the education groups. We encourage them. We'll send them to the doctor in order to get Shantax or, or, or whatever. But you have to have priorities. The, um, once, you, once you're screened or interviewed yeah. a, a prospective client and he's been approved uh, to be a resident, what's a typical kind of day in their initial uh, uh, process while they're starting the okay. 
be assimilated into the group. Yeah, the they come in, you know, they're the new kid in the block. Everybody hates being the new kid in the block. Is uh, Our guys are extremely welcoming because they welcome, they will welcome when they come in. And so we'll have um, the guys who've already been there sort of tell them the rules and bring them around a little bit. In the beginning is we take their phone. Uh, if, if any of my guys are watching me, I'd love to eat. I've told you, I'd love to take your phones for the entire six months, but I can't do that. And I can't do that. It, the number one distraction is the phone and the relationships out there. It, it does not help anything. I think it's the greatest invention of mankind, the worst invention of mankind. It was starting to find out. We keep their phone for 10 days. And at 10 days, with the permission of their counselor, they can have their phone back. But, you know, it's right outside. The moment they get their phone, we, I mean, we have a phone that they can use before the 10 days to call their family and the doctor and the lawyer, but we discourage them being in the phone all the time because the energy is outside of the treatment center and not really in the house. But the moment we get their phone, they're outside. They're smoking a cigarette. They're calling people up. Uh, you know, a typical alcoholic and addict, you know, telling them what to do and da-da-da-da and the ego. And, uh, but there's not much that we can do about it. problem that we do have is in the house they can't have their phone. They can use it upstairs, but in the common areas and the treatment programs and the groups, you can't have your phone. So we ask them to shut it off. Now, if the phone goes off, we just take their phone for the day. And you would think that, you would think that we were doing horrific things to them. They remove that phone for one day? Oh, my God, it's terrible. But if they continue to do that, we will keep it longer. And so for the most part, they get it, and they're respectful, and they shut off their phones. Once they're in the program, yeah. though, but... Uh, the if they, for instance, had a family event or they had a, a, some kind of a social commitment that yeah. they, in their mind, yeah. are they allowed to go out of the program for the day or for overnight or any of that? Yeah, they can take passes. We have you got to be there for a, uh, a month and uh, in a month that uh, we meet, uh, the staff meets with them and the counselor and they make a decision whether to continue on beyond that month or. Uh, to make a recommendation, they go back into a transitional program and then maybe go to a, another place. They can be safe or they go to another place because we want everybody who comes in uh, to succeed in that. Um, yeah, but but I sort of lost my train of thought when you were speaking there. It is in, in regards to the family, is that, is that we, we, we encourage that but in passes that you talk about we'll get them after a month or so uh but we want them to work we're a working house and we want them to be able to work too so there are certain stipulations they have to do before they get a pass now to answer your question in regards to let's let's say the summer the barbecues now we're not gonna let our guys go to a barbecue now they'll say oh no that'd be fine okay you know it's i'll be okay my my family will protect me and i'll Barbecues, they're doing lines and behind there. There's booze, there's drugs. You can't make another person responsible for your recovery. So we would strongly encourage them not to do that. And they have to, we want them to be honest what, what type of family is. And we would call a family member just to make sure on their pass that um, that it's it's a safe environment as much as you can have it. But yeah, well, that makes sense. You, yeah. You, 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 you see. Now, now do, do the house rules, do they sign a, do they sign a paper acknowledging? Oh, sure. Yeah, give so, them the rules, sign a paper. Yeah, so. We have an enormous amount of paperwork. Yeah. Every, every every two years we have licensing yeah. that comes in. They give us another bunch of forms and protocols and and stuff to sign. So when they come in, there's, there's, they spend the first half day going forms, signing it, releases, um, giving us more information, meeting their counsel. If if they had reasons to see a doctor or a, oh absolutely they'd go off premise oh absolutely would they be on their absolutely. own or would someone go with yeah them? one of the, you would be stunned if I brought you down to to the house and and showed you the medications these guys come in with they don't just come in with one medication yeah. these guys come in with bags of medication that you know that legal absolutely all prescribed by physicians absolutely mm -hmm. now harm reduction you know that, that that's in methadone and in a suboxone is a very mm -hmm. important part of what we do so a lot of the guys go to the methadone clinic and they run suboxone and many of them are on antidepressant medication which is important because they they have a, a co-occurring disorder dual diagnosis and that needs to be treated but 
We're seeing a lot of anti-anxiety medications that we have questions about. We're seeing a lot of gabapentin, which is common now that's out there. And, you know, uh, and we see a lot of medications that we consider comfort drugs. Uh, if you have somebody who's, you know, not feeling well, a young guy not feeling well, and he goes into a, a CSS, it's, uh, they oftentimes, many times, many, or let's say sometimes will come out with more drugs than they, they went in with. And some of that is just to deal with their discomfort in order to get them through those difficult times. Yeah. Those that are um, involved in a methadone program, yeah. are they taken as a group in a van to... to uh, no. no, they go themselves. Oh, they do? Yeah, they, they go themselves. There are certain clinics that are around. Yeah, I don't have the ability to transport. Actually, I was just uh, was very fortunate to be able to get a grant for a new van that we have. Uh, uh, but that's in a pick up food and, and for emergencies we'll use that but at any given time I can have one third of of the clients that I have or on methadone and so they often go together to the clinics unfortunately some of the clinics are in mass and cast or they're right down there so they have to tolerate that to be able to get their dosage but uh, methadone is is a part of what recovery is today with opiate addicts, and I don't see that changing. The is it is initially a three month program. Uh, is there a set calendar like when they first come in, in terms of time? I, I I say it's a three to six month program. The guys will think once they get in there that they're in for six months because they want to think that. Yeah. when they get in there, we do a review review with them at at thirty days to find out where they're going. But at ninety days, we sit down with them. And we do a, a, a deeper dive into what they need. Some, some, some of the men don't need more time. They may want it because they know the other guys. They like the food we serve, et cetera. But they can go to a sober house. There are many sober houses around, and they can participate in that. And that would be for individuals who are not utilizing the treatment that we have here and uh, to the best of their ability, they may be struggling with going to meetings. They're more independent. They want more freedom. We'll love them and let them go. Absolutely, go to a sober house. But they can't stay. They cannot stay in EMAS and use it as a sober house. They have to continue on with the intensive uh, treatment that we have there and be a part of the house. Well, those those houses that you have in Malta yeah. are, by definition, are they sober houses? That we, yeah, they, they're more like, uh, so they're sober houses. The old term, like you said, was three-quarter way house, but we provide more than that. Any given time, we have groups over there sometimes. We drug screen them. Uh, we insist they go to meetings. Of course, I don't have anybody to track them down and make sure that they're doing that. But I'm glad that you, that, that you talked about that because we just had our fourth annual retreat up in Waterville Valley uh, that the guys went last week. They went for three days. We had over 40 men who went up there and spent three days up in the retreat, and my understanding is they had a fantastic time. It's all about recovery. It's about guys who've been sober, and I have guys 10, 12 years sober still going to this, and helping the newer people and modeling for them that what recovery means. It takes time, but if, if you stay sober, you do the right things, you can get a trade, you can get a job, you can get back into your field, you can repair relationships with time, you can get healthy relationships, you can get family back. So the new guys that I send up see that, and there's, there's nothing more powerful than the modeling. Do you have um, occasions when someone has been in the program, graduated, went out into the world that he knew before, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden he's back to where he was when before? He, and, and, and Usually he, worse. Yeah, and do they are they allowed back in your program? It all depends on how they left. Yeah. yeah, a big thing to me is how you left. And one of the things I teach the guys—it's old school stuff—but I think everybody should learn—is that you know don't burn your bridges. If you're going to leave and you're going to be nasty when you leave, and give my staff a hard time, that I I really don't want you back again. You know. Uh, However, many times I've taken individuals back, occasionally more than once, but there has to be a reason for it. There has to be something that we can offer for them that, or something they need to work on that they didn't work on the first time. It's about 50-50 yet. About 50% of the time it works and they really do well. About 50% of the time I say to myself, Jesus, why did I even take the chance of bringing this guy back? Do you ever, do you have occasional maybe a graduate uh, after an extensive period of time 
uh, come back and, and, and interact with the current residents. Oh, yeah. It's given a, sure. Tell them I was there where, where you are today, but the difference is... Yeah, they can't help themselves. Yeah. We encourage them to come back and to visit. We encourage them to come back and have a meal because we, we serve uh, everything, uh, lunches and breakfast is sort of, you know, they all cereal and stuff, but lunch is a sit-down and dinner is a big sit-down, which we do it family style. So, we, yeah, we, we want our graduates to come back and have a meal with them and talk to these guys. Fentanyl. Yes. Uh, I think I was thinking of 80, but maybe 80,000 deaths, but I think it was more than that this past year. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I, I hear 70, 80. It goes up all the time, though. It, 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 it's going up. It's not going to go yeah. down. It's fentanyl's everywhere. But the, um, the thing is, it's more, it's more uh, addicted than what used to be considered sometimes as someone who's a, a dope addict. Oh, heroin, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's much more addictive. It's that. dangerous. That's the point. It's, oh, yeah. It's really the, you do a drug overdoses before, but yeah. uh, um, the uh, I know now that they've, they've made a big thing about that that, that uh, type of chemical you can squirt off someone that's been uh, no, overdosed. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. But they know it's yeah, but in fact, they've, they've made it available more to the public just to oh, have it. We have it all over the house. You can yeah. just get it in yeah. giveaways yeah. and stuff. Yeah. We have it at different stations through the house that if somebody yeah, overdoses, is that they can be knocking and save yeah. their life. Yeah. Well, based on all your overall experience, do you see things getting better more on a professional level or, or individual level with the people? It just seems that there's. There's the younger people are more issues today. Each generation seems to be more more caught up in some of the distractions, the, the malfunctioning in their lives, and to some degree. Well, yeah, absolutely. EMAS is is uh, a microcosm of our culture, and there are certain things in our culture that's changed for the good, you know, and there are certain things in our culture that's not doing well at all. And drug abuse and alcohol abuse, of course, is on the rise. And deaths and overdoses, as you mentioned, is certainly on the rise. Uh, we, we, as of yet, have not found any particular treatment or any form of treatment or any particular medication that will solve this issue. Uh, a lot of it always comes down to are people willing to work their treatment plan like any other disease? And we often use, like, diabetes and other chronic diseases. The doctor gives you a treatment plan, you follow the treatment plan, you're going to be okay. And you don't follow the treatment plan, then you end up, you're probably going to get sicker and relapse. I mean, there's really no difference with that. The only difference is that I, my folks clean up too well, especially the younger guys. You know, they're feeling good, they got the comb in their hair, they look good, and they really, the denial is that they don't, really don't see themselves as sick as, as let's, say, let's say, we see them. And so they have a, a, a tendency with their age, they're younger, and they don't have the supports in their family. That's a cultural breakdown, as we talked about before. I don't see that getting any better. I mean, it, it looks to me like it's getting worse. So I would like to sit here and say to you that, geez, you know, there's this, there's this treatment, there's this medication, there's this, this, that, that it's going to turn the tide of this. But as of right now, I think we're just kind of holding our own. Well, the, the uh, trying to think about uh, the, 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 there is no typical kind of client that comes to you. Uh, you know, there's a, obviously there's kind of an age yeah. within a certain number of years difference. Sure. But it isn't that they uh, come from broken families all the time. It isn't that they, they lack a formal education. Right. They, they school dropouts. They don't always have a criminal background. It's kind of a mix of everything. You have yeah. some some people who um, maybe when you if you talk to them, you find out they they started doing alcohol when they were teens oh, or young teens. All of them did something did the, when they were teens. They did marijuana when they were in junior sure. high school, and and other times that they get caught up in it. It got worse as time progressed, and they ended up and they looking back over the and they lost the, the job. They lost their temporary. It's genetics. Genetics is a huge part of this thing. Yeah. I get what. I, Right now, I get about 26, 27 guys in the house. I would bet that um, that 95% of them have either a parent or a grandparent who's got a primary substance abuse problem. And along with that, there's panic disorder, anxiety, and mental health issues in their family. Yeah. 
So to cope with, they they go they look for a substitute to. Sure. to yeah. Everybody yeah. wants to. If human beings, we want to get away from pain. We want to get to pleasure, and uh, and that's all of us. And and my 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 guys learn early that they can change their mind and they can change their mood and they can cope a lot better with life if they use a substance. And then what ends up happening is usually the genetics takes over and then they really don't have a choice in using it. And it's not helping them anymore. It's really destructive. They're not getting much out of it, but they can't stop. But that other generation that they get the genetic connection, are are they people that may likely have been alcoholics but not drug addicted? Uh, It's all the same thing. It's all compulsive. So you could be compulsive gambling. It's some kind of compulsive behavior. I think at some... At, at some point in time, they're probably going to find something genetic. They keep looking for as if that's the gene for addiction. And they haven't found that. But usually a constellation of things is genetics, it's upbringing. It's, but the, you can't, can't minimize the impact of somebody who has a strong genetic history of addiction in the family. We've talked um, about men this whole program. Yeah. And uh, my understanding is there's literally hardly a tr- anywhere in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, except for a, a, few, a very few, uh, resident pr- programs for women. Well, there's, there's m- much fewer. I, I would say, geez, I can't even give you a number. There, there is, is much less treating women. And we've talked about, we've talked about in, in EMAS and my board of directors and at some point in time opening up a women's program. Uh, women bring a, a whole different set of issues uh, uh, to the table. The biggest problem, uh, in my experience, uh, with women is the men that they've been involved with or in relationships and prior relationships, fathers of the children, or men that they're currently involved with. You know, and they get involved with abuse of men, so there's a safety factor. That's, that's, that's something that I don't really and those of us who run men's program really, really don't have. And then, of course, that you have the specific issues that women have in their particular issues. Um, many of them have children, so you have children and, and that reunification issue with that. So women need a lot more services than men do. So starting a program with that is costlier, and it's kind of hard to do the wraparound and, and get them. It's just much easier uh, treating men than women, but I got to tell you that we could use as many women programs as as men men's program. They are totally underserved. Well, in, like in in the Commonwealth, is it yeah. just Framingham 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 has a women's prison? Yeah. But is that the only prison the state has for women? I I think it's the only prison, but there are other places of incarceration. Yeah. In other words, like section if you get section right. thirty five, yeah. uh, because of drug and alcohol issues like yeah. that, uh, yeah. they sometimes I believe they sent them to Framingham. But now what happens is they'll section you to a particular treatment program, or they'll have a facility. They have a facility that handles section thirty fives where you get treatment. You do your twenty one days there, and then you're released hopefully into a to a woman's residential program. Yeah. Well, women with an addiction. Uh, um what do they do? It's obviously a different approach publicly with them than your program because they don't have that option to become a resident at EMAS or any of these other programs. Well, they they have they have recovery homes for women. They have some great recovery but homes. None, but women. none in this area. Uh, not right around here in the city, in in the city that they do. And you know, uh, I'm trying to think of that. Edwina Martin down in Brockton, Shepherd House. That's in. That's in the city, and I think they just opened one up that's affiliated with the Gavin Foundation, the Arts Foundation. I'm not sure, but absolutely, you need much. I, I mean, we could use more services across the board to do that, but specifically with adolescents, there aren't many adolescent programs around, and definitely women's programs. We we. We could use a lot of funds and in, in, in well, you, well, let's say, let's say uh, you you have a client who's let's say 30, 34 yeah. years old or whatever yeah. in the thirties, and uh, he has maybe a family outside that he's connected to. <laughs> do you do they have visiting rights to come in, or do the, do the, we the client have go to his home and on Sundays? Or? We have visiting, and I'll probably surprise a lot of people when I say this is that uh, 
back in the day that you were talking about when the alcoholic man had a wife and whatever, most of my guys aren't married. Uh, they have relationships. They have the baby mamas. In fact, they even call them my baby mama. Not everybody, but they'll do. My guys, it's, it's, they'll have um, uh, several children by different women with that. And uh, they pay for some of them. Some of them they don't. They get chased down by DCF. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, so it, it's, it, it's, it's a part of this situation that they have that's very stressing for them. Some of them will owe $15,000 in back child support, and we try to get them help for that. Uh, but it's, uh, it's like, I mean, Ed, it, when they say they have a wife, we have to ask them, is this a real wife? Uh, I'm not kidding. Yeah, no, we, I have to, we have to say, is this a real wife? Or yeah. like, you just go, because, oh, no, we call each other husband and wife. Yeah. You know, the thing is, folks. It's common it, law. Well, common law, <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. Common law, I, I don't think that the average people understand how the underclass lives. Because the, the folks that I'm dealing with, listen, I grew up in a project. I was the underclass, right? So they understand I how... I was Charlestown. They took first... <laughs> no, I grew up in... Well, yeah. And, 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 and it's the underclass. Poor, single, uh, mo mother-dominated, single family, uh, with no money, living in Section 8 or Project Housing, the underclass, they, the average person has no idea of what that life is like. It's totally different from the suburbs that are out there. And you would, I, I think people would be stunned if they really understood how the problem is just expanding. It's not getting smaller. It's in expanding. There's more, I mean, there's no sense, you can't even use the term illegitimacy anymore because it's not culturally appropriate, but... But children are being born all the time into poverty. And what we know is, I think the FBI comes out with stats, is the number one, number one factor of a young man going to prison is being born to a teenage single mother. Yeah. I mean, that's a fact. And that's getting worse in us. That's not getting better. It's getting worse. Uh, so the, the, I don't see anything healthier that's addressing that problem. What we're sort of doing is normalizing it. No, you know what it is? You see nobody in the backyard. Nobody wants to know it. Nobody wants to know. Nobody's talking about what's really going on like with the folks that come into my program or, or, or the people who, who consistently go from one program to another and live in poverty. And then, you know what? They handle it. They throw money at them, man. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was, I was thinking as you were talking about the situation. Um, a, a while back, uh, I was cleaning up my closet of clothes, and they were wearable yeah. clothes for whatever reason. Uh, my my size changed or whatever, and I took I took them or some of them down to your office. That's eh, not good enough for them. Well, that was the whole story. <laughs> the uh, I I said I got some clothes, and I'm thinking maybe someone graduates from the program, you know. So one one of your staff people said, "Ed, you can leave. We'd love to have, but I'll tell you what's going to happen." He said, "We're going to take them ourselves because the clients here have girlfriends them. with credit cards, and they're buying them clothes. They won't." And it's not in style, obviously. It's not but current fashion. What it is right now is, and you know, you know, I'll I'll say this: when COVID came out, we went back to that, and the COVID money came out for the federal government. I had guys coming in who had five, six, seven thousand dollars in money from checks. Now you give five, six, seven thousand dollars to an active addict. That's like the kiss of death. But again, that people who are doing these things, you know, it makes them feel good. They don't want to understand about addiction. You don't do that yeah. with them, you know. That's not the appropriate way to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to encourage anybody to call you. To, for, but if, if someone has any reason they need to, yeah. would you leave a phone number and they can call you now? Or an sure, email it's, it's, address? It's, it's the general number uh, at EMAS is 781-321-26. Zero, zero. And you'll get one of my staff that'll answer, and they'll give you some general information about it. But let me tell you, for folks who are out there, if, if you're a man and, and you want to get treatment, go to a detox. You can look it up and find out where they are. Go to a hospital, go to a detox, check your insurance if you have it. And for the, the mothers and the, and the girlfriends and the real wives and the not real wives, 
is that you can't do it for them. They have to make the call. And then from there, they get into the continuum and they can get referred to. And on that note, thank you for coming. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Ed. I'll see you next year.